Hello and welcome back to Never Lick the Spoon. I'm back in noisy London for this episode as we dive yet again into the world of wearable technology. And just like the contrast between this and the calming sounds you heard in the previous episode, things are getting a bit more intense this time around. Last time we brought you some of the more positive aspects that wearable tech has been bringing to our modern lives. Now we hear about some of the more dubious aspects. From big tech trying to guess if you're happy or sad so that they can tell you stuff, to healthcare apps that monitor much more than they probably should. One thing's for sure, by the end of this episode, you'll be checking every TNC and every app and piece of tech that you have at your house, if you don't do so already. Well, that's all to come in this episode of Never Lick the Spoon. We start our story back with the Halter Monitor. Now, I don't know if many of you have heard of that, but it was one of the first wearable devices focused on healthcare. It's quite a simple device consisting of a series of electrodes that you attach to your chest, and those monitor your heart activity. Introduced in the early 60s, it's still widely used today. The Halter Monitor and subsequent devices are tightly regulated and conform to strict rules on the accuracy of its readings. Then, over 10 years ago, along came the Apple Watch and the Fitbit, and wearables exploded into our everyday lives. Devices like the Apple Watch and Fitbit, collectively known as wellness devices, are classed as consumer products. Therefore, they don't have to conform to the same stringent regulation as our good old Halter Monitor and its descendants. At least that was the case until literally the past year or so. Improvements in wellness devices, such as the Apple Watch 6 series, is now able to monitor your sleep, monitor your heart, and even check your blood oxygen levels. Meaning that the lines between what we had previously called a medical device and a wellness device are beginning to blur. This has thrown up all sorts of questions, like when should a consumer device, which is not as tightly regulated, be deemed a medical device? Should the likes of Apple and Fitbit adhere to certain standards for their devices? To help us with our blurry vision between the two, I have two outstanding guests for you. First up is Ellie Harwich. She is the Director of Research at Reform, a think tank that seeks to make public services better and smarter, and has the ear of many senior policymakers to boot. So I thought it'd be interesting to hear her thoughts. First off, I asked Ellie what the blurring between our Apple Watches and the likes of the Halter Monitor means for us, the general public. Right, okay. Um, Well, actually, a lot of wearable technology uh, up until now is not regulated as a medical device, which means that a lot of the... um, Ultimately, the kind of sensors that you have, even if they're pretty similar to a clinical device grade. So say, for example, uh, the kind of new Apple Watch, um, the heart rate monitor is a similar grade to actually a a kind of medical uh, electronic cardiogram. Um, So it is an ECG that you're ultimately wearing on your wrist. Um, Due to liability issues, none of them are really regulated as medical devices, which ultimately means that sometimes the reliability of these trackers is difficult to measure because they don't need to go through the same process as an actual medical device. So, by sticking in the TNC that it is not a medical device, 
This gets a tech company out of jail free from a whole raft of rules on medical devices. However, it's when looking at some of the apps that we use to monitor our health that this is where the wild west of the wellness device industry can be seen in all its glory, as Ellie explains. So I guess aside from the realm of, of, of actual wearable tech that you can have, you also have a whole raft of, of um, apps that, you, that are available uh, both on the, the, the Google uh, Store and, and Apple Store. Uh, I think the kind of example that I had mentioned to you was actually an app um, that I discovered which was called Heart Rate Monitor. Uh, so obviously you as a kind of, you know, lay member of the public see that or like, okay, that's quite interesting. It's free. Let me download that. Um, and you think to yourself, well, there must be some sort of vetting or something. And when you kind of click down in the 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 um, Google store to look at a bit more detail about the app itself, you very soon find out again, that kind of self-regulation by disclaimer in a way, which is to say, well, actually, this is not a medical device, should not be used as a medical device. So again, pushing the responsibility onto the consumer to be, I guess, au fait enough or curious enough to be able to go, you know, quite deep down into the the very lengthy kind of terms and conditions. Um, But actually, once you contrast that uh, disclaimer, with the way that people actually use it. So even if the intended use of the devices or app is not supposed to be a heart rate monitor and you look at the reviews, uh, that's when you find actually really shocking things and, and actually, you know, ultimately sad stories. And I'm, and I'm really hoping that it's, it's no lawsuits waiting to, to, to be filed because you found a lot of patients with serious chronic health conditions like arterial fibrillation and so on who are saying, oh, this is amazing. Like I now, you know, have been able to, to uh, have a much better understanding of my condition and so on when actually that could be ultimately a very dangerous situation to, to end up in. And if ever, I guess, any serious uh, damage was caused to the patient or anything serious ensued, there's nothing that the patient can kind of really do ultimately. Scary stuff. But a clever way to see how these apps are being used in the real world. Someone who will really make you check your T's and C's on apps is my second guest. And indeed, she is a returning guest, Nira Van Zelk. Nira, of course, you'll remember from the very first podcast, is a lecturer in psychology in our very own Dyson School for Design Engineering at Imperial College London. Nira is turning her attention to what's called emotional privacy. Why you should be worried about your emotional privacy is all explained. Here's what she had to say when I caught up with her a few weeks ago. Welcome back, Nira. We we were we were laughing that or laughing or crying that uh, we're we're almost a year into lockdown, but it's been two years, pretty much to the month when you last were on uh, the podcast. Um, so welcome back. Thank you. Is that true? Really, two years? Yeah. Yeah, 20, uh, 2019, wow. January-ish, I think, of 2019, yeah. Um, so you spoke, so we spoke back then at length about kind of the Internet of Things more and more generally and, and privacy concerns related to the Internet of Things. But today we're going to speak specifically about your general concerns on wearable tech. Um, I've been doing research with some colleagues at Dyson School of Design Engineering, we're trying to sort of jot down our thoughts into a position paper on this concept of emotional privacy. 
uh, it, which, which is becoming a thing now. Companies are capable of, through the use of proxies such as accelerometer movements and heart rate um, sort of data collection and various little bits and pieces, little sensors that are built into many of these wearables, they're able to actually deduce not just obviously where we are and what we're doing, but also how we're feeling. And that is a massive issue because if this data is then sent onward to third parties, which is oft it often is, then we become the perfect targets for advertising. And we are already kind of seeing some effects of this. Um, and is it okay that Amazon knows how I feel in the morning and, and why should they need to do that? You know, someone might be intruding into my privacy by, by, by looking at me through my window and that that will be considered intrusive. But if someone is continuously in the background collecting physiological data on me as I go through my day and they send this data onward to another company who I don't know, um, and it's written somewhere in the TNCs and I've agreed to it ages ago when I pressed yes and I didn't bother reading those, then we're moving into this very strange um, territory, I think. So something I was thinking of listening to you that struck me was there is the obvious dangers, as you've just said, of what happens to, to our data when it's exported to God knows where. But... <sighs> What potential dangers are there for us? Because we're already seeing it with phones as in the most basic example of, you know, oh, I must walk 10,000 steps a day or, you know, Huawei will be unhappy with me. Um, are we going to just breed an entire population of hypochondriacs if we just have a laboratory on our wrist that kind of, you know, screams at anything we do? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the concern. I think... The, um coddling people into a state of kind of feeling that we're constantly in control, I think that can impact the development of human autonomy. This is something that I explore with my students in, in a module um, that I run called Design Psychology at, at Dyson School of Design Engineering, where we're working with the Information Commissioner's Office to design behavioral interventions that will help protect children when they're online and actually wearables are, are sort of part of this as well. Because this idea that um, if something is telling you all the time what to do, you know, and if you, especially if you grow up with that and that's the norm for you, uh, where the idea of sort of ignoring that is no longer on the table, I, what kind of things does it do to the development of human autonomy? Autonomy is the capability of making your own decisions. And most of us would like to believe that we make our own decisions. So if I'm continuously nudged by some kind of program uh, into making decisions, can that become um, too comfortable for me? And, and if I get too comfortable, then what happens when all of the anxiety is removed? I am a big proponent of anxiety. I think anxiety is a really good thing. Um, many companies, especially those focusing on this kind of fluffy notion of well-being, and, and oftentimes that's peddled with alongside some of these wearables, they're, they're, the focus is very much on increasing well-being. But I believe that that is absolutely the wrong focus. I think human beings need anxiety in our lives because that is the, the, the big thing that pushes us onward. 
uh, towards progress, towards change. Anxiety is, an, is a massive impetus for change. So to achieve some kind of a perfect state of well-being where I'm continuously just existing within this bubble is, is not possible. It's ludicrous even to think about it. I would say that optimal human socio-emotional functioning isn't necessarily keeping me on a string and telling me what to do, but rather perhaps building up my own capacity that I'm able to do these things without the devices. But of course, that's a horrible sales strategy because it doesn't work. I guess coming coming back maybe to, to more kind of, yeah, wearable tech. So a lot of the a lot of the kind of devices that we've mentioned so far, like at the Apple Watch, they're what we would call wellness devices. And what, what do you think from a regulatory, from a policy angle, what should we be doing? Because, you know, with, with the forecast in sales of wearable tech, this problem is only really going to get worse. Yeah, I think we're, we need to be doing far more than we're doing now. Um, when I speak to my collaborators at um, the Information Commissioner's Office, when I speak to other people who are involved in uh, policy, I, I notice that there is a, it's a, people are very aware of what's happening. They are not unaware, but you often get these kind of sighs of like, it's a jungle and there's a long way to go and we're just not there. And because there's continuous innovation, it's really difficult to legislate. What, do you, what makes it even more tricky is the fact that this data that comes off of your wrist and it's about your heart rate is probably not going to be even stored in the same country where you are. So it, it's an absolute jungle, right? And it's completely unregulated and you have strong commercial interests and you have basically no regulation, even though people are making a big, big thing about it right now, it's still extremely underregulated and and companies, especially the big tech, are allowed to basically get away with murder when it comes to what they do with our data. Yeah. And and with your, I suppose, Chris, looking into your crystal ball, um, you know, we've heard from researchers at Imperial, you know, that uh, there's, there's going to be so many more parameters that we can measure from the body in terms of data. So there's, and you know, with the advent of 5G, it all, all of this coming together, it just means that we're going to be able to measure so much more about ourselves and be able to transmit so much more data quickly to servers, you know, in God knows where, as you said. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess, wh where do you see all this going, you know, in, in five or 10 years? Uh, yeah, wh wh what's your gut saying? Yeah, it's difficult for me to kind of predict what's going to happen in terms of the wearable tech, but that a horrible scenario would be something like, you know, something out of Wally, -E, where where people are basically just sort of enslaved by their devices. And it's their way of they don't trust their own selves anymore, you know, in terms of what they're doing, but they are, are continuously dependent on the devices telling them what they need to do. And that is obviously, that sounds a bit nutty, but, and I don't mean it like that. I mean that it is absolutely, it, it is possibly on the cards if it continues unregulated. So it seems to be clear that the wild west of wellness, wearable devices and apps needs to be cleaned up. So how could we do this? If only we had an expert. Back to Ellie from earlier. 
I think it highlights something that I think is is really the kind of next step for a lot of regulators. And this is not me trying to to add a whole load of extra work on regulators. But I do think that the kind of typical passive approach uh, that they've had up until now with with a lot of um, I guess applications just because of the sheer volume of number of apps that that are that are developed there has been up until now no space or really money per se uh within the uh different healthcare regulators and specifically the the medicines um uh medicines and healthcare uh, regulatory agency who um looks at the regulation of medical devices there has been really Yes, no space to have a more proactive approach. So obviously, this is not to say that they're going to every single year do a full review of everything that's on the App Store or on the Google Store. But you could potentially imagine a situation similar to what HMRC does with tax audits uh, to kind of have an idea of the level of fraud. And maybe actually through that and using technology, uh, you might develop a model over time that might help you predict a bit better actually which apps tend to be non-compliant um, and then in that case um, uh, be able to you know kind of have, have a bit more of a proactive approach and 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 be able to understand actually what loopholes people people are using be able to enforce regulation a bit better because ultimately I do think that it's extremely important that patient trust is kept um, because ultimately I think the more scandals will happen the more difficult it will be to ultimately have the kind of public public acceptance. So final question I've been, been meaning to ask for the entire episode. Does Ellie have a wearable device herself? <laughs> so I, I used to. I used to track uh, my runs through my phone with an app. Um, then eventually I stopped running due to due to knee injury, unfortunately. And I am thinking, I am genuinely thinking about about another another piece of, of of tech. And that has actually a lot to do with confinement because it's very easy to stay sat at home all day working. It's actually quite nice to have a reminder to be like, hey, actually, you know, go for a two-minute walk and then come back and and you know, you can still focus and everything, but it's yeah. And that was Ellie Harwich and Nira Van Zalk chatting with me there. Well, that's it for our two-part special on wearable tech. Has it changed your view on wearable devices? Well, it's definitely made me think a lot more about what I'm agreeing to in those T's and C's. So until next time, take care. And always remember, never lick the spoon. (laughs) 